April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is sponsored by Fishbrain. Fishbrain is the biggest fish-specific social media platform available on the internet. Designed to bring the fishing community together, the app allows you to follow a location, species, or particular angler. Naturally, you don't need to post your secret fishing spots, but it can be fun to share your catch with other passionate anglers. I use Fishbrain not only to see the variety of fish species being caught around the world, but also to spread awareness about proper fish handling. There's a great group of anglers online, and this app truly engages users while sitting atop endless possibilities to spread education and awareness. Go to www.fishbrain.com to learn more, or get it on the App Store or Google Play. Ted Jurassic of Tibor Reels has a truly remarkable story. I met with Ted when I was in Florida, half expecting to hear the tale of a tool and die maker turned reel maker who fell into the industry after falling in love with the sport. Never did I expect to uncover such a unique and inspiring history. I'll let him take it from here. I born in Budapest, Hungary in 1937, July 19th, and my birthday going to be another few days, and I'm going to be 80 years old. 37? Yeah, wow. Happy almost birthday. Thank you. Now, were you raised in Hungary? I raised in Hungary until I was 17, 17 and a half years old, and then we had the revolution in 1956, and I had escaped, escaped uh, uh, from Hungary. I walked to Austria. And from Austria, we went to Germany in a refugee camp. And then from there, I flew to the United States to Camp Kilmer, and I wind up in the United States. Okay, that's incredible. So let's back that up just a little bit. Were you with both of your parents when you when the revolution happened? Well, I was with both of my parents, but I went uh, in the middle of the city and fought in the revolution for about a week, and then we lost it. And uh, I came back home in the middle of the night. My friend's parent, uh, his dad came over. He said, the secret police just looking for his son. And they asked my address. And I just get my stuff ready and then just left the house. And that was it. Were you an outdoorsman at this point in your life? Yeah, well, uh, outdoorsman, I was learning my trade, and then I was working all the time. And I went fishing in the Danube River for carp, you know, when I had the chance. But uh, most of the time I was, you know, be, you had to work over there. You couldn't mess around, and, you know, we don't have no cars to run around and all that. We just, thank God I learned the trade, because when I come to this country, it came pretty handy. Now, when you say trade, you're a machinist? A tool and die maker. Okay. Now, how did that come in handy during the revolution? Well, it didn't come handy, but I know a lot of good friends of mine. We went went, uh, fort in the revolution, you know, and uh, fortunately some of them guys got captured and hung. 
Oh my goodness. Can you explain just for, for someone who doesn't know the history as well? I mean, I'm Canadian and I'm afraid I really don't know any of that history as much okay. as I should. Can you maybe walk me through the basic timeline of that? Well, there was, well, what happened, the Russians occupied Hungary after the war. And it became a communist party. You know, a lot of people, you know, became uh, communists. And uh, they was pretty ruthless, you know, the communists. Anybody, well, we had stores. My mom and dad had stores. And they just come in one night and they say, we nationalize in the stores. You'll be out of here. And if you want to come work for us, fine. And they just took it. They just took everything over. Just like they're doing it now in Venezuela, the same thing. So I went to a trade school, you know, and then, you know, I learned my trade. And then I worked in a bicycle factory. And then when the revolution was over, you know, I had to escape because, you know, I don't want to get home. No, no. So when you said that you were fighting, were you like in the, I mean, was it like in the movies where you're in the battlefields? Yeah, well, we went to the police station. All the Hungarian police left their station, so we got the guns in there. And then, you know, we could start shooting the Russians because the Russians came in and then come in with tanks and whatnot and we couldn't fight against the tanks, you know, and then we lost the revolution. I mean, you seem like a pretty relaxed guy, <laughs> like really relaxed. Did you ever suffer any sort of PTSD or? No, no, I never suffered any of that. No. I was young, you know, I was, like I said, 17 and a half years old, you know, I, I was just, you know, really, really, really try to make Hungary a better place. How old were you when you came to America? I came to America in 1957, January, and my birthday was in July, so I was almost 18. Okay, so really right after that you left yes. and you came here. Yes. Did the rest of your family come with you? No, no, they couldn't. They were communism. You know, they, they don't let nobody out. How did you get out? Well, I walked at night, you know, and then I hid in the daytime and then made it to the Austrian border. So you, this isn't like you applied for a visa and you no. left. You, you escaped. <laughs> yeah. When, uh, when I laid down, we were in a farmhouse. We went on a border, the border, the farmhouse, and uh, we hid there. And the border was, uh, you know, about a quarter mile wide, was all uh, plowed up so they could see their footprints. They had towers, machine gun towers, because they don't want the people to escape to Austria. And uh, they mined it, you know, so I didn't want to step on a mine. So... A bunch of people, you know, was with me at the middle of the night. We're going to run across, and we've got to watch this, you know, the searchlight. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got... No, no, that's okay. That was bad. I'm sorry to take you down that road. I. I... Well, that's okay. And, uh, you know, I waited, you know, until a group of people went. They luckily didn't step on a mine, and I just run by myself because I figured I'm better off just going myself. This is unbelievable. I, were you ever able to see your family again after that? No, not for many, many years. No, because, you know, they were communists over there. Not my parents, but the communists wouldn't let them out. So where did you... Well, I wind up in a, uh, a camp, you know, refugee camp in Austria, and they treated me very well. There's a lot of people in there. And we was waiting, you know, which country take us in. And a lot of countries took a lot of refugees. I could have went to Italy or France or anywhere, really, Australia or anywhere. But I chose, you know, come to the United States and then went to uh, Camp Kilmer, wind up. And uh, 
from there, a Catholic organization, a uh, orphanage, took young guys like me. We don't have nobody. And uh, lived in an orphanage for about eight or nine months. And I didn't speak the language, so the orphanage uh, really was good to me. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay, so from the orphanage, where do you go from, from there? Well, and uh, fortunately, I was a pretty good soccer player. And uh, at the Sundays, we used to go under the Brooklyn Bridge and play in soccer. And somebody seen me playing in this uh, it was a company, a Boulevard Watch company had a team. And a guy, I couldn't talk to him, come over to play on that team. You know, I couldn't communicate, but they brought an interpreter and asked me if I would go there and play in that team. Uh, they would try to find me a job in the watch company to play on a team. So I said, yeah, I'd do that. And uh, with the team, we start traveling to Long Island and upstate New York and different places. And I still lived in the orphanage. I don't know where to live. And then uh, when we went out to Long Island, I met some other Hungarians, played on another team, and uh, they wanted me to play for them. And uh, then I just packed my stuff and moved to Long Island, and they gave me a place to live, and then played on their team, and then they uh, got me a job in a plastic factory, and then... uh, I started getting paid, and they was paying me, you know, $20 a game and $20 a goal, which is, wasn't a lot. And uh, that was that. I'm actually at a loss for words, which doesn't happen very often, by the way. Ted, can I call you Ted, or would you prefer if I call no, you Ted. Tibor? You call me Ted. Because as soon as I walked in the door, just for people who don't know, your real name is... Tibor. Tibor. Yes. And then just so we can go ahead and squash any confusion about your last name. It's it's Jurassic, but uh, in Hungary they call me Eurachic. See, they don't say that Ch in uh, English language, so they say Jurassic. They, they're better off with that. Right. Okay, so Ted, you were working with plastic. Where does the machining start? Well, I, but I still couldn't speak too good of English, and I didn't know the measurements. In this country, we have fractions. We have uh, different measurements, not millimeters. So I had a tough time. And then I was going to night school, and learning English was very important me to learn English. And then slowly I start to uh, understand and then uh, from the uh, plastic factory, I find another job so I could uh, uh, work in my trade. But again, I couldn't speak too good English. And I went into a factory when they start working with metal. And uh, I was just young. I was 18. And, and uh, see, in Hungary, you start the apprenticeship when you're 14. Okay. And uh, uh, we don't, instead of when you're 14 years old, you got to make up your mind. You're going to be go to college, you're going to go here, going to be there, whatever you're going to do. And uh, I want to be in a, a, a jet engine mechanic because the jets was coming up, but they was filled. I couldn't go there. So they uh, took me in as a tool and die apprentice. And that's the trade I learned. And then, uh, you know, I went and worked to this factory. I told, told them I know how to do, do all that. And... Uh, 
they uh, you know gave me different jobs and you know then they seen I know how to do it and I worked my way up. How did you adapt to America at first? Well, <laughs> it was funny. I uh, we had ten refugee boys in an orphanage. They took ten of us and they put us in a room. And I was afraid to go outside the first morning. Outside is this was in Brooklyn. I never forget Borum Place, 66 Borum Place in Brooklyn, St. Vincent Home. And uh, the first time I went outside, I seen soda bottles all over. And the bottles were so expensive in Hungary, I thought. <laughs> picking up those bottles and took it to my room. I thought I was rich. Oh, this is, I mean, 17, 18, you're just a boy. That's, it really, it really is. If you look now, you know, we always think that we're so old at that age, but you really were just a child. So you thought you were rich. That's so cute. I'm sorry. I mean, were any of the boys you were there with, did you? Well, I was there for about eight or nine months. And then some of the boys find some other sponsors because you just couldn't get out of there without a sponsor. Somebody had to sponsor you. They gave you room and board and sponsor you. Otherwise, you you would have stayed in orphanage until you find somebody, a relative or somebody going to sponsor you. So they gave you room and board and a job. Were any of these boys boys that you uh, originally fled from the country? Yeah, they fled from Hungary, but I didn't know them then. Oh, I, okay. I didn't know none of them. I just come from myself, from Budapest, and these some of the guys was all different places. But you just you know you just couldn't go and ask assistance anywhere. There's not such a thing. You know, you had to have a sponsor and you had to get a job. Okay, so the people who sponsored you then were the were, that was the soccer team. That's right. The people. But actually, they they gave me a job in a plastic factory. And then after that, when I went to the other factory, then I was okay. Then I got on my own. You know, got then it. I made enough money I could rent a little apartment. I'm assuming you didn't make your money with the bottles, <laughs> <laughs> but it's that is so sweet. I love it. What about the rest of America? Did it take you some time to figure out the fisheries? Uh, well, the first time, you know, and then what what was my good thing? You know, after when I had a job, and then I was starting to make a pretty good salary. You know, two to three years. And, uh, you know, then I was like 21, you know, and then uh, I started speaking fairly good English. And then I met my wife. Oh, good. Where did you meet your wife? Yeah, in a Hungarian dance. Really? At the Hungarian <laughs> Hall. I was living in Lindenhurst, and she was living in Lake Ronkonkoma. And we just met, and uh, I was dating her for about a year or so. But I want to get married because I want to start a family. You know, then we got we got married, and then uh, I moved in with my mother-in-law and father-in-law because I, you know, I don't have no place to live. You know, after that, and then uh, just start working. Uh, I worked one job, then I got a part-time job and another part-time job, and I kept working. And on the end, I kind of figured out uh, I never gonna make a lot of money work by myself. I need to hire some people and I need to start a business. What was the first business you started? Well, it was a tool and die shop, and I started behind my father-in-law's house in a garage. Okay, this is great. <laughs> and I kept 
kept uh, kept at, uh, the, my main job and a part time job, but at night I worked in a garage. Uh, had you had the children at this point? No, no, no. Well, I after first year I had uh, I had my uh, well after I married about eight months later I uh, my daughter born Marianne, and about a year and a half later my son born. Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Oh, well, it's you know, I want to have family. So you're working basically around the clock at this point. Well, pretty much. Was your wife working or was she staying no, home? No, she no no no. She when I got married, I told her you don't work no more. I, I support the family. Okay, so now are you fishing and I mean how do, you couldn't have time to well, raise no, a family. No, no, no time for fishing, but my luckily my brother-in-law, my wife uh, brothers, they were all fishermen. And they start teaching me, you know, they teaching me how to surf cast. And that's how I started fishing in this country. First, you know, I don't have no money to buy anything. I just was just saving money because I want to buy some machinery to do my job. And uh, what happened is uh, we went on a beach, you know, fishing and surf casting. The kids was little, put them in a crib, you know, and on the shore. And on Long Island have a lot of opportunities, the North Shore and the South Shore, you know, fishing for striped bass and bluefish and weak fish. And then I start fishing in my spare time. And later on, when I got, you know, more machines and was making more money, then I quit my last part-time job, just kept a regular job and worked at night. Later on, when we start doing a little better, then I quit my main job and I just start working full time for myself and uh, made out pretty good. I built, you know, all kind of stamping dies and all kind of special machinery I built. And uh, later on, I was fortunate enough to hire a couple of guys to help me at night. And I made some more money. And then uh, that's how I kept just keep on going, just keep on saving to, to buy more machinery because without the machinery, I just couldn't do what I know how to do. Yeah. And then uh, my uh, folks, my uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law, they were retired and they moved to Florida. And then one year, at somewhere around 1970, I guess, 72, I don't remember 100%, I came to visit to Florida to visit them. And then I seen Florida, the fishing opportunities, and uh, I decided, I said, someday I'm going to move to Florida. Wow. Did your wife like it here? <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you move here? Moved to Florida in 1979. Wow, okay. And I sold the, sold the house, what I had. I bought it from my father-in-law and sold the house and moved to 79. And... Uh, just started a new business. I just rented a warehouse and moved the moved some machines down. I could move down, you know, it wasn't that big. And uh, rented a warehouse and started my trade down here. And I right away got customers, you know, because I know how to do special things. Then I went to the Florida Keys one time, and I had a friend of mine who uh, uh, showed me some fishing spots. He moved to Florida. I mean, he moved to uh, uh, down the Keys, the Florida Keys, and he became a guide. So he told me to get down there and uh, fish with him. And then he worked for Worldwide Sportsman in Alamorada. And I didn't know absolutely nothing about fly fishing. But I made all different kind of things for a conventional reels because then I started to know how to pluck cast. I started to know how to spin cast. 
And I said, shoot, like on a, on a plug casting reels, you know, the ambassador they made it those days to cast good. They had the plastic spools. But when we caught a big fish, you ruptured the spools. And I said, shoot, that ain't no good. So I made some out of aluminum, and I worked out. Everybody wanted it because the spool is still together. is not going to uh, rupture. And uh, so I made those, but, you know, I just gave it to people. I didn't. I wasn't in a business to charge them. I just did it because I loved to do it. And I made some manual bales for spinning reels because of spring bales, you know, they break all the time and have all kind of problem. And when he worked by Worldwide Sportman, this good friend of mine, he says, uh, hey, I want you to meet Billy Pate. He's the greatest fly fisherman, have all kind of world records and whatnot. I want you to meet him. So then I went to Worldwide Sportsman, and one day Billy Pate come in and he had a uh, Finnor fly reel and he says, boy, I lost the big fish because this reel wouldn't work and blah, blah, blah. So then Tony, he's my friend named Tony, he volunteered, he said, oh, Ted could make you a reel. And he came over, shook hand and everything. He showed me his Finnor and it's just, you know, parts that to me, there was parts, a reel is a bunch of parts in it. And I looked at it, and he explained to me what happened to him with the fish. And I right away discovered, you know, his the drag surface is just too small and not real. So Billy Pate says, well, you would make me, you know, a reel and everything. I says, yeah. I says, when I come down again, I make you a reel. It's take about a year. And then, but I, I, when I did this, I did this, I wasn't living in Florida yet. I lived in Long Island when I met uh, Tony Lee. I just came down for a visit. I wasn't living in Florida yet. So this was somewhere around in 75 or so. So when well, I came back and worked and uh, at, you know, in the evenings and stuff, I started making two reels and I made two NI reverse reels for Billy Pate because, you know, he was a great guy. And I says, so I, when I went down again next year on a holidays visit him, I went down to Keys and gave him the two reels. And he wanna, you know, pay me for it and stuff. I says, no, no, I says, you gotta teach me how to fly fish. <laughs> and he did. And then after that, he says, well, in Worldwide Sportsman, they showed it to other people and they all wanted to buy it. He says, would you make me some? I says, well, I says, I can't make you five or 10 or 20 because I'm not going to make any money on it. How long does it, did, was it taking to make one reel? Oh, well, see, those days we had all manual equipments. We don't had any CNC equipment, so I had to make everything by hand, one at a time. It was a lot of work, but I didn't care. So I told him, yeah, I says, I'll, I'll make you 100 if you pay for it. He says, no problem. So, and that's how I went into the real business. Were you still doing other work or just reels? No, 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 no. Still doing other work. See this. Still today, the real business is a small part of our business. I saw that. I Googled you. And then yeah. when your, your main, I'm assuming it's your main company came up, I thought There's, this is just too coincidental. It's got to be the same, the same right. company or the it same. Is. It's got to be you. Yeah, it is. Okay. And then, uh, you know, and uh, uh, when you, you know, the first time, you know, when I made these things, it's pretty painstaking. We don't make any money. Uh, well, but I love to do it, so I did it. 
But then after that, evolved, you know, then made different size of reels and everything. And after that, a couple of years, we start to make some money on it. At the first, we, we couldn't make any money. What did people think when they finally got their hands on these hundred reels? Well, they loved it. Everybody loved it, you know. And But I, again, you know, I didn't know. Uh, uh, you know, Billy Pitt uh, uh, showed me uh, how to fly cast and all that. But I really didn't know the business. And then later on, I learned, you know, we have to make direct drive reels and have, make different sizes and you believe it or not still today the people buy those reels you know and, and we still make them and sell them but now we only make anti-reverse and an anti-reverse is a reel where when a fish runs when a spool turns the handle doesn't turn Right. The direct drive reel, when a fish runs, the spool turns, the handle goes around. That's why they call it a knuckle buster. It, yeah, I've been there. Okay. <laughs> Coming up, Ted and I jump into real specifics. Again, thank you to Fishbrain for making this episode possible. Check them out at www.fishbrain.com or subscribe to the app to receive interesting fishing facts, techniques, and destinations. What about your reels back then was so different to the reels? You mentioned something about the drag size. Well, the, yes, the drag size, and I experimented with all different kind of material for a jack, drag plate. As if today, you know, we have all kind of synthetic materials, carbon fiber, all kind of like stuff. Teflon. Teflon drags. But I checked it out. Did you know uh, the old photo... Ford motor cars that clutch they had the clutches you know to uh, they don't have automatic transmission they had clutch where you put it in gear and the uh, plates come together to to get the vehicle moving they were all made out of cork okay I was going to ask you that I went to the uh, uh, junkyard and looked at some of that cork and I decided, you know, that's the one. And still today, that's all I use. I use a cork drag. Were you everything. the first one to do that? No, other people do that, but they made it too small. Right, because I know Abel uses cork. Oh, right, right. Were you? Did you do it first? Well, I made the reels. Well, Abel uh, bought the reels. You know, Abel copied the reels from a Seamaster. Right, okay. Seamaster made the cork drags but made it too small okay. their biggest problem was too small and they didn't not ventilated but uh, the drag plates you have to have some uh, ribs on it to have like a heat sink to get rid of the heat because a heat is gonna uh, booger up the cork surface so you gotta take the heat away from the the gear the main gear which you glue the cork to how did you figure all of this out well, it's, I mean, look at it behind every radio and all that kind of equipment had the heat sinks on it. And I used to make heat sinks to put it into a, all kind of electronic equipment. Was your first batch of reels pretty solid or did you have to go through a major trial and learning process? Well, yeah, well, what I did, I tried it. You know what I did? I, I uh, got the cork and tightened it down, you know, and then... Put it on a machine, you know, which just spins fast, and then spun it and see what's going to happen. How much is uh, how many RPMs I got to do? So the the grease because we impregnate the cork with a special grease, and then we we do the we, we buy the grease and then we mix some uh, uh, graphite in it, and that's our proprietary thing. What we do, you know, and then I just find out where it's going to work for the longest and the best. What happens after the Billy Pate phenomena? 
Well, after Billy paid, you know, all that sort of stuff, and then I start to see the industry, what the industry needs. Then I knew I needed lighter reels, make it lighter materials, and make a direct drive reel. And uh, latest, what we did, you know, we did the, uh, the seal drag system. And uh, I have to add to that, I looked at quite a few, you know, they did it first, I didn't do it. But most of the seal drag system, you cannot take it apart at home. You got to send the reel to the factory because everything is press fit. Mm -hmm. So I took some time to figure it out how to make it because uh, let's say people go to Amazon or go to Alaska and something happened with the reel. Well, you can't do nothing about it. But the stuff what I came up with, you could always take it apart and fix it and put it back together so the guy could go back to fish. Right. Did you get to a point where you had too much demand and you couldn't keep up with it well the first time we made a large arbors you know and uh boy we had a heck of a demand on it and uh but i told my son and my daughter you know they was in the business i says you know never make any commitment you can't keep right so when they called up you know says well we need you know 10 12 of these right hand whatever we need and we had to tell them no we just just can't do it and uh we had uh, we had some tight times. Well, we you know we we right now uh, we hardly could keep up with production. What year did you start changing over handles? Because for so long it was just right hand retrieve, right? Right. When did it start switching over to the left? Well, uh, then I made you know majority of the reels I made you could switch it to the left from a very start. Oh wow! Even the Billy Pate reels you could switch it to uh, left hand drive. So all the time, every time, any materials I made, you could switch it over to left hand. Oh, that's incredible. Well, what happened is, see, the the people who start fly, they good spin fishermen, they always, you know, uh, use the left hand. And uh, actually, if I looked into it, I'm right-handed. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of writers and a lot of experts, they, uh, they all say, well, you should reel with your right hand because you could, you reel faster. But if you really think about it, when you cast with your right hand, because that's the strongest, that's when you want your power in the right hand and then reel with the left. I myself cast with the right hand and reel with the left. So do I. Okay, well, whatever, you know, but so the I. expert has, you know, the, all these sport riders and all that, the expert riding and all that sort of stuff. So they tell you that tip. And, and that's true. You could reel much faster to the right hand. But then I, I read a cast with my right hand and reel with my right I got to be honest. I reel just as fast with my left. And I don't like switching hands. No, I don't either. I don't want to switch hands. I don't either. Well, that's, but, but all the reels are always, you could switch it to left hand. You know, you could yeah. put all the spool off and, uh, you know, change a couple of clutch dogs and go to the left. Who's making your reels now? Are we you do. making them? Sure. Now, who? how many people work at the factory? Well, right now we approximately have, uh, what, 30, 40? Oh, so this is not a two-man operation. No. 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 <laughs> okay. Couldn't afford to make the reels in a two-man operation. No, I didn't think so. <laughs> no. Okay, so there's a lot of people. So you're not being, you know, you're, you're not being slave driven here like there's other people who are helping you out oh yeah i mean then well you know we have a real department and we have the equipment you know to make the reels but again you know we do other parts we make for different people we make sheet metal parts we make a lot of machine parts we you know we do uh, a lot of other stuff over the years and i had mentioned this when we came in okay we're talking about just i was mentioning the industry changes there's been so many new 
companies and so many new faces and so many changes in the industry, yet somehow you still manage, when people talk about the best of the best, you're still always listed, which is inspiring because it tells me that quality speaks. Quality and what's been honey and and anything is customer service. Uh We have the best customer service. Uh, They did a, I don't know, about four or five years ago, Sims did a a questionnaire, sent it out everywhere. He told us, you know, they they want him, he he wanted to list, you know, other people, customer service, and he really put us on top on a customer service. That's the most important because I always know customers always write, even if they're wrong, (laughs) they always write. So I made sure when they call us, always have a live person. They call us and we always get to them what's wrong with the reel, send it back and we fix it. We gave lifetime warranty on these reels. We have reels out there 30 years old and they send back and then we just fix it and charge them shipping or charge them a $10 fee or something and then send it back within a, you know, within, within a week and people like that. So customer service to me is one of the most important things on making these reels. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. What about the functional side of things? In the reel I'm holding now, this is obviously a newer reel. Right. What am I looking at that's different to a reel from 10 years ago? Well, it's lighter. Okay. It's definitely lighter. The bearings, see, see these T-bore reels, we, we don't, uh, like the Billy Pate reels, we don't have ball bearings. They all sleeve bearings. Do you still make that same reel today? Same reel today. Oh. The same, the tarpon reel and the bonefish reel. You know, we, and we still sell them. All right. Yeah, we still sell them. So they're a little heavier than these? A little bit heavier, yes. Mm-hmm. What else is different? Well, on these, you know, there's new reels. We cut quite a bit of weight out of the spool. And then uh, we change the bowl bearings. Now we, uh, we do the ceramic bearings, you know, which is not rust. And then, uh, you know, we try to use everything domestic, what we could buy, you know, all our stainless steel screws, all domestic, everything we try to buy is uh, made in the United States because it's important. What about marketing? Have you found that you've been able to maintain your marketing? Because I remember the first T-Bore I saw, and it sure looks a lot like this. Yeah. Have you done any major changes? Well, like on the inside, like on the T-Bore, we did quite a few changes on the inside, you know. And uh, what we did, we tried to lighten it up, lighten it up. But what what this new equipment, the CNC equipment, what we have today, you could do whatever you want to do. I mean, and there's so many reels, you know, they, they take all the weight out. But uh, some of them is so light, you know, and if you bang it hard or something, it's going to uh, dent the spool or, you know, I don't want to say no names. <laughs> I don't really care, you know, but it just if you take out too much metal out of something, you know, it's just uh, sooner or later you bang it somewhere, you drop it, it's going to bend. Right. And I sure don't want that to happen because guys, you know, they drop stuff. We drop stuff all the time. Right. But from a, from a branding stance, like your logo. Yes, that's has our that, logo. Has that been the same for? A long time. Same, same. Well, I think we came up with that logo, uh, oh shoot, probably about a good 15, 18 years ago, something like that, with the T, with the oval on it. And is that a family? Like when you guys are doing all of your marketing and all of your planning for, you know, for annual stuff, because you're a family company, right? Right, right. Yeah, so you guys all get together, you sit down, and you go through everything together. And listen to my daughter. She does the talk, and me and my son, (laughs) we listen. (laughs) 
funny thing because she went to, uh, that's what she learned in college. And did you know uh, the old country, you used to send your daughter to college to meet a nice young man who goes to college and marry him. <laughs> yeah, right. So I did the same thing. I sent my daughter to college. I never dreamed of she going to learn marketing and do it. <laughs> but it just worked out. She went to college, learned marketing, and, and she, she had a pretty big job. She was an advertising guy for the Bell's uh, store. You know, and then she did a bunch of photo shoots, you know, with all the models and stuff. I mean, she she did all that, and she learned marketing, and now she does, you know, with the reels, and I'm, I'm kind of lucky with that. You you are, and honestly, I really love that she's maintained the same look, because I can spot one of your reels from a mile away. Yeah. Are colors of reels and aesthetics... Yes. The, are you finding that that's being more important to the consumer these days? Well, yes, it is, because they have so many reels to choose from they, they do. it's really uh, saturated a whole bunch of reels yeah. and, and the sad thing about it is a lot a lot of overseas reels coming in I mean a lot of Korean reels and a lot of Chinese reels coming in and uh, you know and I'm not complaining about this but we the real makers now the rod makers is different but the real makers we gotta pay a 10% excise tax on every reel we make a, a what tax? A excise tax they they passed the excise tax law uh, in the second world war if you was a manufacturer making something and if let's say you made a fishing reel or a gun you had to pay a 10% excise tax when you sold it to somebody because they didn't want you to make luxury items. They wanted you to make military stuff during the war. Well, when the World War was over, they never took the excise tax off. So we still pay 10%, and the, and the Chinese reels and Korean reels don't have to do that. So now you think of this. We sell the real, I'm just use a number, we sell the real uh, uh, wholesale, let's say $300. We got to pay $30 a real, 10%. Then we have to pay the income tax on it. Now the people who sell the real, they have to have a 6% sales tax. We got to pay 10% to the reps. Plus, you got all your costs. Okay, so it's all the costs. Now, all the Chinese and Korean reels and all that stuff just coming in this country. Have they been able to rip off your technology? Oh, sure. The, the, the Chinese, they don't have any kind of etiquette whatsoever. And on top of it, you know, they're communists. Right, there's that too. Seriously. Okay. Yeah. Uh, seriously. And it's, uh, nobody could say nothing about it. I mean, that's the way it is. And, you know, that's the way our economy goes, you know, and then... They'll, the politicians have to figure it out what to do. Where do you see the future of Tibor going? Well, we just keep going the way we're going right now, you know, and I'm still, you know, I'm still figuring things out, how to do this, how to do that, and then uh, we make sure uh, we have a good customer service. Are you ever going to slow down? Well, I slowed down quite a bit now. <laughs> yeah, are you fishing more now? Just yeah, time? quite a bit, fishing quite a bit. And, and uh, you know, luckily I got good kids, you know. Yeah, you seem like you're, you seem like you're in good hands. I don't want to probe too deep. Is there any part of your story that I've missed that you would like to add? Uh, not really. The only thing I know is uh, 
the harder you work, the luckier you're going to be. You seem like you're a hard worker. <laughs> Do you know what I think I, I, I really, really respect most with you that I didn't know? Because I never know what to expect when I sit down. Is your appreciation. Like you just, you're so obviously appreciative of where you are today and, and of America too. You know, that's really special. Well, I don't want to say this or I don't want to brag about this, but I'm more American than a lot of Americans. Uh, being in a pretty good path and this is the greatest country on earth. <laughs> Men like you are so inspirational. I don't think you have any idea. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please feel free to leave a review about Anchored online.